right, the cross. Uh, it's always been interesting to me how we view the cross in, in modern day. Uh, you think about what the cross used to mean you know, in the early centuries compared to what it means now, and it, it seems quite a bit different. Think about a cross, and you, maybe you see them on necklaces, right? You see them on hats, you see crosses on tattoos, you see them on shirts, and you think of cross, and, and maybe regardless of your religious affiliation, even who you are, you think usually Jesus. Maybe you think a Christian, maybe you think Christianity. In some way, you, you correlate it with that. And you think about what cross used to mean when you thought of a cross back in maybe the early centuries. See, for a cross, for those people, it would have been death. As that video showed, it would have meant anguish, man. It would have, went, would have meant pain. Cross was very much just a means to death for the early Romans. And so now you think about it, you know, 2,000 years after that, a, a cross, a symbol that meant death, that meant pain, now is a symbol of what? Of, of love and of grace. And so this morning, we want to focus really on that. We want to focus on the cross. Uh, as we remember Jesus Christ uh, this morning uh, through uh, bread, through juice, uh, representing his body and his blood, we want to remember that day and what happened on the cross that day. And I'll tell you, that that, that day was different. You know, thousands of people died on crosses back in that time. But it was that day that was different. That day was different than any other death that ever happened. It was because of who died on the cross uh, that day. And so Mike and I, we're, we're going to kind of tag team the sermon a little bit together, and we're going to do kind of mini sermons, uh, something a little bit different. We like to do different things for communion services. And so we're calling this the two sides of the cross. And so this week, we, we, we started to talk about what it may be meant to look at the cross, and we wanted to get a good picture of that. And so we came up with this idea of two sides of the cross. Uh, and so what we're saying by that is that one side is, is basically the human perspective. This is the human point of view. This is what happened that day. This is if you stood at the foot of the cross as you saw Jesus on it, that's that perspective. So maybe you think of Mary, you think of uh, the disciples, you think of his friends. It, it is their view of what happened that day. It is the human side. But on the other side of the cross, you got the divine side. You have what happened and what is happening through God's eyes. Maybe you picture Jesus on the cross, what he saw in his perspective. And so you see that you have two very different perspectives, the human perspective and then God's, the divine perspective. When you put them both together, I think you get a really complete, really beautiful picture of what the cross is all about. And so I want to lead you through really that first side, through the, through the human side, through what happened uh, that day. Mike's going to come up here and kind of complete it, and it, it's all going to make sense by the time he finishes up. And so let's look at the, the human side together. Uh, the first one I want to mention, and we're going to look at several different people uh, throughout the Gospels that were there that day. And so the first one I want to mention is the crowd. All right, so this is the generic people here. This was the crowd, the people. And Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they all reference that there was a huge group of people that were present. I read earlier this week that there were maybe even like hundreds of thousands of people uh, there, like around Jerusalem at that time. There's a lot of people, the crowd. And they almost all describe the crowd as pretty rowdy. They were pretty riled up, man. They were ready to see Jesus die. Uh, now, a lot of them, maybe, maybe some of them were sympathetic. You know, some of them maybe were Christ followers, but it seems like a lot of the crowd, uh, they were ready to see Jesus die. Uh, so look, look at uh, Luke chapter 23, and you'll get a picture of what the crowd was about. Uh, this is verse 18. But the whole crowd shouted, Away with this man, release Barabbas to us. For Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. That's always been curious to me that they were willing to accept a murderer back into their fold for Jesus. But wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, Crucify him, crucify him. Later on in Luke 23, the people stood watching. Again, this is the crowd. They stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. 
And there was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. So you can get, begin to get a picture here of what the crowd was about. And yeah, as I said, some, you, and we can't get into their minds, right? Some of it maybe were sympathetic. Some maybe were followers of Christ. But it seems like the majority of the crowd, they saw another man. They saw very much a criminal. And so that is that first perspective I want to mention is that at the cross, the crowd sees a criminal. He's another guy hanging on the cross that maybe needed to die. A man who claimed to be the Messiah. And in their mind, this is the end of Jesus. In their mind, Jesus is going to be done with. This is just another criminal. We're moving on, and we'll probably see another crucifixion the next day or the next. See, the crowd sees a criminal. But that's only one point of view. The next one I want to mention is Nicodemus. Uh, And I like the story of Nicodemus because it's kind of an obscure one. We don't talk about Nicodemus much. Uh, But maybe you remember Nicodemus from John 3. Jesus and Nicodemus, who is a Pharisee, have this really kind of almost debate, and Nicodemus is asking Jesus questions to explain the faith and explain certain things. Here's just a short kind of snippet of that in John 3, and this is way before the crucifixion early on in the gospel. Nicodemus says, how can someone be born when they are old? So he's asking him, what does it mean to be born again? Jesus, you talk about what this being born again, what does that look like? Nicodemus says, surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. And so it talks about here in the gospel that Nicodemus and Jesus have this huge long discussion throughout the night. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He is wondering what Jesus is all about. He's wondering what this, this faith is that Jesus describes. He's wondering this righteousness that Jesus describes. And he's asking them questions. He, he's very curious about what he is all about. And so what happens here is then when we get to the cross, you'll see that there's a big jump from curiosity to what it looks like is faith now. And we don't see a lot about Nicodemus between that. And we really have this story, and then we see him at the cross, and it looks like Nicodemus has faith. Check this out in John chapter 19. So this is right after Jesus' death. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. And with Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away, and he was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds, And taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. And so I'll tell you I'm making an assumption here about Nicodemus and his faith. uh, Because we don't get a a really blatant, like Nicodemus had faith. We don't get that here. But we see that Joseph was a disciple of Christ. I'm making an assumption that Nicodemus was close to faith, if not already at faith by this point. Because he's with Joseph caring for the body. And so what I'm seeing here is Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee, who was questioning something happened at least by the cross or maybe at the cross. Or look at this. At the cross, Nicodemus, I think, sees solutions to his questions. It's a different perspective than the, than the crowd. The crowd who saw a criminal, now Nicodemus sees maybe solution to these questions of faith that he had. And let's look at another example, the centurion, the Roman centurion. He's a famous example of who was there at the cross that day. The centurion was very much, his job was to crucify Jesus, wasn't it? That was his job, is to to carry this task out. Matthew 27, when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake, and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. So you see that the centurion and other Roman soldiers were there that, that day. They felt the earthquake. They felt what was going on. They saw what was happening. And a guy who had witnessed hundreds of crucifixions in his life, Hundreds of people had died on his watch. He knew that this day was different. You see, at the cross, the centurion sees a savior. You see that perspective of Nicodemus, a Pharisee who sees a solution, a Roman soldier who sees a savior. You have a lot of the crowd that sees just a criminal. 
So let's keep reading it. In, 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 uh, in John 19, I don't want to leave out uh, maybe one of my, my favorite examples of someone who was there at the cross, and that's Mary, the mother of Jesus. Because um, I think when you look at Mary, you see a whole different perspective. Uh, John 19, verse 25 through 27. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing near, nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, the disciple took her, or took her into his home. And so you see that this is a very kind of human interaction here. This is a very real, like Jesus being at the point of death, looking at the disciple saying, hey, please take care of my mom. You know, take care of my mom. We don't get a lot of like actual words here about what was going on with Mary. I mean, you can imagine them, right? You can easily imagine what a mother felt watching her son die on a cross, the anguish and the pain that she would have felt. And so I wanted to point Mary out because I think this is a very human and a very real perspective as well. That although Mary probably knew who, Je- knew who Jesus was, that he was beyond just her son, I think she was grasping that for sure. And the disciples, they were beginning to grasp who Jesus was. See, at the cross, though, I think Mary just sees death. You know, that, that would be a mother's response, right? Mary just sees anguish and pain. She sees death. And so I bring out all these perspectives. And look, we could go on to a lot of different people that were there. But I, want to, I wanted to show a, a lot of them to see that, you know, the crowd saw a criminal. Nicodemus saw a solution. Centurion sees a savior. Mary sees death. We have a lot of different perspectives of what happened that day. But I'm telling you, that is just the human side, right? That's just one side of what happened that day. That is just kind of what was there and what they saw. But you have a whole different side that I think explains what the cross was all about. See, the other side is what puts the love and the grace into this, into what happened historically that day. And we've got to see both sides. And so Mike's going to come up here in a few minutes and really kind of complete this all, and you'll see how this all connects together and how these people and why they were brought up. But for a few moments, I want you to put yourself in that situation, for you to put yourself in maybe historically that day when Jesus died. Because when we look at the human side, I think you've got to consider yourself as well and to ask yourself, what do you see when you look at Jesus? You know, Mary saw something, Centurion saw something, Nicodemus saw something, the crowd saw something. What do you see when you look at Jesus? Uh, what do you see when you stare at him at the cross? And so for the next few minutes, we're going to have some questions on the screen. I want you just to kind of reflect quietly to yourselves for a few minutes. Uh, then Mike's going to come up here, show you the other side and how this all comes together. Now take your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 3, please, if you brought it. Go to Romans chapter 3. For most of my life, I saw the cross from only one side. When I was a child growing up and hearing lessons in Sunday school, coming to church on Sundays, the cross was all about me. It was all about my side. It was all about the human perspective, as Jonathan did such a good job describing. The suffering the love, the outstretched arms of Jesus. When I thought of the cross as a young person, that's all I knew. It wasn't until I went to school, actually, to be a minister and began to see the cross from an entirely different side, because there truly are two. There's, there's my side, but then there's the Christ side. There, there's my perspective and what I see, what I may feel, what I presume, what I assume, and then there is Christ's side, and it's all business. There is no assumption. There is no speculation. It is all very clear and all very eternal. The facts about the cross are undeniable. I mean, you can be a big-time skeptic of Christianity, but you'll never doubt that it actually happened. History proves not only the existence 
of a young man named Jesus, a carpenter's son from Nazareth, but also his brutal and gruesome death on a hill they called Golgotha or Calvary. But the real issue and the reason we set aside a whole service to talk about it is whether or not we understand the event from not just one side, but both sides. Take your Bible and go to Romans chapter 3, and, and, and I want you to read with me beginning in verse 19. This is an epistle from the Apostle Paul, and from these five or six verses that I'm going to read, we're going to realize what Jesus saw when he looked at the crowd, when he looked at Nicodemus, when he looked at the centurion, and when he looked at his, his own mother Mary. You see, the crowd saw a criminal, just another Friday execution. There were three crosses on that hill, and in their minds, there were three criminals deserving of the death penalty. But you know what Jesus saw? Jesus saw their greatest need, your greatest need, my greatest need, which is salvation. Look at verse 19. Paul writes, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world be held accountable. Okay, stop for a moment. The law was given by God to man, not to make us righteous, but to prove our unrighteousness. You see what Paul said? Paul said, whatever the law says to those who are under it, every mouth will be silenced because the whole world is held accountable to God. You see, no matter how religious you are, no matter what kind of person you believe yourself to be, you're not righteous and neither am I. And the law doesn't make us righteous. It simply reveals our unrighteousness. Look at verse 20. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Think about this, church. We have the written law of God. We would call it the Old Testament. But we also have that inner law of conscience that testify both against me. Deep down in the quietness of my own heart and my own reflection, I know there's something wrong with me because you might see an upstanding member of the community, but I know me. You might hear me speak on Sundays, hear me pray with a group and think one thing, but I know who I am in the quietness of my own mind, spirit, and heart. So what does God's law do for me? It reveals my greatest need, which is salvation. So the crowd saw a criminal, but Christ saw our greatest need. Look at verse 21. Nicodemus is one of my favorite characters in the scripture because in the beginning, he is both curious and skeptical. And I kind of like that because I am both curious and skeptical in my own faith. While Nicodemus looked at Christ on the cross and wondered, is that the solution to my question? Is that the solution to my problem? Is that the answer to my question? You know what Jesus saw? Christ saw a religious man who was finally made righteous. Look at verse 21. Paul writes, but now apart from the law, remember Nicodemus was a keeper of the law. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was a teacher, communicator of the law. He was the guardian of the law as a Pharisee. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. You know what righteousness means? In this passage, it means, quote, 
holy and upright living in accordance with God's standard. Do you know what God's standard is? Righteousness. Absolute straightness. There is nothing crooked about God. So Paul says, this righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. Now look, it is terribly disingenuous of you if you remain skeptical of God's plan to righteousness to point to God and say your standard is too high. No one can meet the standard of righteousness, of complete and utter straightness. There are many skeptics in our community that turn their backs on Christianity because they believe God's just asking too much. Think about how hypocritical that is for a moment. I'm glad that God's standard is absolute righteousness, that it's absolute straightness. If ours were a curvy God, he wouldn't be God. If he could change his mind tomorrow and turn his back on us the next day, he wouldn't be God. And how thankful we are in other areas of our lives that the standard is clearly posted. I'm thankful for those signs on the road that say speed limit 55. Can you imagine if there were no speed limit signs and policemen could just decide they thought you were going too fast and pull you over? Some of you think they do that now, right? What if those radar guns weren't precisely calibrated? What if you couldn't trust them? What if you're a college student and you go sit down the first day of class, a new semester, and the professor, he doesn't give you a syllabus? He doesn't, he doesn't give you a list of course requirements? He doesn't tell you what's expected of you to pass this class. What would you do? You'd go to his desk after the class. Hey, what do I read? What do I study? Uh, you told me there'd be a final. Where's the textbook? You see, we all appreciate clear standards when it comes to every other part of our lives. Jesus saw a religious man who kept the law his entire life. We would have pointed to Nicodemus and said, wow, that's a good man right there. But he wasn't righteous. So the question that begs an answer is, how righteous am I? If God's standard is absolute straightness, how straight am I? I'm willing to tell you as your pastor, you might see me as a spiritual leader even. I'm not very straight. So if the standard is righteousness, absolute straightness, what do I do? I can't turn to religion like Nicodemus did. For religion is not God's standard. Righteousness is. You see, realizing that I'm incapable of such a demanding standard, Jesus Christ from the cross looked at me like he looked at Nicodemus and met God's requirement because religion can't make me righteous. The cross, however, can. Now, look at verse 22. Jonathan mentioned the Roman centurion, a man hardened and calloused to the process of crucifixion. How many spikes had he personally driven through the hands and feet of those executed to die on a cross? And yet, when Jesus died and he felt the earthquake beneath his feet and he saw the sky go black and he saw the way in which Jesus suffered and how he handled it, he exclaimed, surely this indeed was the Son of God. The centurion saw a savior. You know what Jesus saw? Jesus saw the proper response to the cross, which is faith. Look at Romans 3, verse 22. 
This righteousness, this absolute straightness, is given through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, to exercise faith is to rely upon something. I can believe my whole life that this music stand is capable of supporting my notes and my Bible. But until I trust it, until I rely upon it, I've not exercised faith in it. So Paul writes, This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. Verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now look, perhaps you find everyday faith difficult. Perhaps you believe that you possess believing faith, but the idea of walking by faith Monday through Saturday is something that eludes you. Well, let me just remind you of something very quickly. Faith is not simply a one-time event when we confront the cross. Faith is an ongoing condition. Now, please listen carefully. Don't misunderstand what I'm about to say. There are three kinds of saving faith. The Apostle James in James chapter 2 calls it living faith. It's the only kind of faith that's capable of saving unrighteous men like me. There's, first of all, mental faith. You have to understand, you have to believe with your mind, you have to process it in your brain that Jesus was indeed who he claimed to be, that he died on the cross for my sin, but it doesn't stop there. You see, then there's an emotional faith, you see? The emotional side of faith is is that turning, that sorrow for my sin and that turning from the little God of me to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then there's what we call volitional faith. Volitional faith has to do with my will whereby I surrender my will. The authority in my life ceases to be me and becomes the crucified Son of God. You see, that's why genuine faith always produces authentic obedience. And this is one of the ways in which Christianity stands in stark contrast to every other world religion you could name. Every other world religion points to man's ability to better himself with hopes of gaining eternal life, not Christianity. Christianity builds its hope, not in man's ability to achieve his own righteousness through good behavior, but Christianity proclaims Jesus Christ is my righteous representative. He's my hope. You see, our faith is in him, which is obviously the only logical and fitting response to the cross. And then finally, Mary, the mother of Jesus. Weeping, I'm sure, with that heaviness in her chest that probably made it difficult to breathe. Watching her son struggle to take his last breath. He's endured the humiliation, the suffering, the mocking. All she could see was death. But you know what her son saw? Her son saw new life. Look at verse 24. Paul said, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ. Do you know what the word freely means? It means without a cause. So what is Paul saying? Paul is saying when Jesus hung on that cross and he saw his own mother, who could only see death in that moment, Jesus saw the path to life because we were justified Freely, We were justified without a cause. We didn't deserve it. We were made righteous before God, and we did nothing to earn it. 
So Mary might have seen death, but Jesus saw life. Let me ask you a question. Why is it that so many in the church don't experience that life? You know what Jesus said in John chapter 10 and verse 10? I have come that you might have life. Now, not just eternal life, not just we go to heaven when we die, but he went on to say, and have it to the full. You got a cup, you're looking for life. Jesus said, I came to fill it up. It's going to be running over. Then why do so many of us fail to experience that kind of life? I think it's because our faith remains inactive. I think so many in the church are unhappy, we're dissatisfied, we're, uh, we're not content. We, we have difficulty handling sorrow and difficulty. It's because our faith remains inactive. Again, remember, James, the half-brother of Jesus, he said that active faith is saving faith. So if your intellectual faith rarely influences your daily decisions, your daily actions, then you can't experience life. You see, my faith in Christ crucified, believe it or not, impacts my marriage. It answers my questions regarding money and time. My faith, that, that's, why, that's why it's so terrible for a follower of Christ to drift away from the cross. It's why the apostle Paul reminded us, the church, to remember the cross, the broken body and the shed blood. I'll tell you another reason we don't experience life, it's because our allegiance is divided. The Bible calls this being double-minded. It's like we want to be committed to two separate things, but we can't. We're double-minded. Serious faith demands serious loyalty. And some of us can't even bow our heads in public and give thanks for the food at a restaurant. How serious is your faith? And you want to know why you don't experience life? Serious faith demands serious loyalty. And serious loyalty to Christ and his cross, that's what produces serious life. The last reason we don't experience life is because our conscience remains hardened. You know, brokenness regarding my sin, that's the key. Realizing that when Christ died for me, when Christ died for sin, that when I decide to embrace him in authentic faith, I die too. I die too to my own sin, which means daily confession, which means moment by moment, short accounts with God. God, I was out of line when I said that to Amy. I'm sorry. God, I shouldn't have had that thought. That's way out of bounds. Please forgive me. God, give me grace to find forgiveness in my heart for them, just like you forgave me. The cross is a symbol of death. Jonathan's right. You go back 2,000 years and hang one of those around a gold necklace, and people would mock you. They'd think, they'd think you're some kind of crazy person. The cross was an instrument of death in the first century. It was one of the most agonizing deaths imaginable. The paradox of the cross is that for followers of Christ, the cross is a symbol of life. We believe that from death came life. From the world's worst came God's best. So I ask you again, what do you think of when you think of the cross? It's easy to think about his arms outstretched wide, his love, his grace, the suffering, the horror of the moment. But there's another side to that cross, and it's all business. You see, God had a plan. 
It was outrageous. It was awesome. It would impact millions of lives for thousands and thousands of years. And he executed it without a flaw or a hiccup. That is the event that we remember today. Now, here's how we're going to do it. In a moment, the band will begin playing. As they begin playing a song that may be new to some of you, I want you to stick with it and pay close attention to the words. This entire time will be for your reflection. We're not going to take it all at the same time. We're not going to come by in some sort of line. You sit until you are ready to get up and move to the station closest to you. Take a piece of bread and a cup. Go back to your seat. When you are ready, it could be momentarily. It could be at the very end of the service. You remember the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, today we give thanks for the obedience of your suffering servant, Jesus Christ, who bore in his body the sins, the transgressions, the failures of mankind for all time. So I thank you for his broken body, and I thank you for his shed blood. Might we remember as we reflect the critical place that holds in our lives. I pray because of him and in his name. Amen. This time is yours. Sing with us, and when you are ready, make your move. <laughs>